Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull with you on FBI Radio 94.5, streaming online or on the podcast. This is Out of the Box. It's the place where every Thursday from 12 to 1, me and one guest sit down for an hour and talk through the stories and songs that have shaped their life. Today I'm recording from so-called Redfern, which is on land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and my guest is joining me remotely from Bundjalung country. Each of us are coming to you from unceded Aboriginal land, so I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal and Bundjalung elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My guest today is Matt Corby. You might know him from this. Somebody call out to your brother, he's calling out your name. Oh, oh, oh. Or this. We got carried away, all the love that I was blind to. Or this. So don't you worry, you'll be my resolution. Or the album he dropped last week, Everything's Fine. This is an album written at the peak of Matt's songwriting powers. It follows five massive years of growth in his personal life and his artistic practice. But that's not to say this album is the biggest moment in Matt Corby's career. He's been a singer his whole life. He started as a touring musician, became a TV star at 16 years old, signed huge record deals immediately after, and then kind of got to work honing his craft, pairing things back and learning how to produce music. It's a journey that almost happened in reverse, and it's a story that we're going to explore all the way up until 1pm today. We're also going to walk through some of the songs that soundtracked the big moments in Matt's life. There's some pretty surprising tracks on here, so I'm so excited to dig into them today. Matt Corby, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, it's great to have you back at FBI. This isn't your first time here. And we'll talk about that later in the show. But first, I kind of want to go back to when it all started for you. Can you tell me about your first memory of singing? Oh, yeah, I can. Um, I mean, I used to sing around the house a, a whole bunch with my sister, who we were very competitive. And um, she was she was very close in age. I mean, she's 16 months older than me. But I remember maybe being in grade two and going up to my music teacher and I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I can sing, you know, I, I feel like you, I could sing something for you. And she was like, oh, okay, sure. And sang her um, that song in Sister Act that like, if you want to be somebody, that, that song, <laughs> I sang that. And then she was like, She's like, oh, that's actually quite good. And she's like, come with me, you know, I'll, t- I'll take you to the, I just want to, I want to take you to the principal. And then I sung for the principal and the principal, she was so lovely. Her name was Mrs. Curran. And um, I sang the same song for her and she was like, oh, that's just wonderful. You have a wonderful talent. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. And then the next day in the morning, we're all sitting in assembly and Mrs. Curran gets up and says, there's a, very talented young student amongst us and, you know, he's going to get up now and sing us all the song. And I was like, who's this kid they're talking, she's talking about, you know, looking around, 
no idea. She didn't run it by me beforehand and just said my name. And then just everyone, you know, bung-eyed looking <laughs> at me, you know, all these kids. I'm just like, okay, I got up and grabbed the, the like microphone thing and sang the same song again. And no real nerves or anything. I just kind of did it. And um, I think I was caught so off guard that it, I didn't even have time to compute what what I was being asked to do. And from that moment on, I, I just was known as like, oh, you're that you're that singer kid, <laughs> you know. And I love the idea that you and your sister were so competitive with each other, and then you kind of just pull ahead at school in that way. Oh yeah, I got one up on her finally. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she's better at everything else, but not the singing. <laughs> 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 and you said that you and your sister were in a musical household. What do you mean by that? Were your parents artists as well? Uh, well, uh, my my mum actually was quite a good singer. Uh, my dad not so much, but he um, he played a lot of piano and stuff. He used to always play Cat Stevens, the same Cat Stevens song almost every day. It would drive us insane. But um, I remember we went past a, a music shop. It was like the one music shop in the, oh, there's two music shops in the Sutherland Shire where mm-hmm. I grew up. And, and like one had this really cool Gibson Les Paul out the front with like the target sort of artwork on it. And I was just like, oh, so sick. I want to learn how to play guitar. <laughs> and dad actually stopped the car immediately, like g- found a park and took me into the shop and bought me like a $99, you know, three quarter length nylon string Oh, and wow. found a guy to, to teach me. Um, and it's so nice that he encouraged you in that way. That's so special. Yeah, he was so he was so for it. I think um, I think there was a part of him that always wanted to to be good at it himself, and so he was really stoked that I just by my own fruition just found it found it interesting and 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 mm. wanted to engage with her. So I was singing a lot already on stage as a as a kid. Uh, at church and um, you know it's a common theme with with a lot of singers they get their start really just just in in singing to a congregation um, on a Sunday and uh, definitely you know my story is no different to that um, it definitely had a huge impact too just on on my comfortability as a performer probably you know I, I think I bypassed a lot of that awkwardness that 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 happens when you want to start playing your own music and things like that or or just singing in front of any crowd yeah I guess it kind of ushers you in as a singer and you know maybe teaches you how to sing in groups in that way um Mm. the, the role of the church in your music making also is that it brought you to Jared James yes do you remember when you two first met yes well he he was touring in this group of vocalists, there were, there were five vocalists in this in this band, and they would they would go around to schools mainly and and churches sort of on the weekends, um, and they came to my youth group uh, when I was thirteen, and I I still remember it so clearly their show. They were all really fantastic singers, um, but I remember Jared. He had this one moment where he just sort of played a song by himself and his chops and his voice just is insane. Like he was, you know, he still is obviously, but 
when I saw that and I saw him sing, I had this real moment of like, I'm not alone <laughs> in this world. Mm. <laughs> like this guy gets it, you know, and he had all the runs and he had this insanely beautiful falsetto. And I remember going up to him after the the band played and, you know, it was just, just losing it and just like, hey, man, like, you know, I sing and, you know, like, oh, can, can you let me sing something for you? And, and, uh, and then you sing the song from Sister Act. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, sang, I think I sang like Amazing Grace or something, like a real R&B yeah. stylized version of it. And um, I could see him like slightly, slightly like skewing his head as I started singing. Like he, was, he probably would have had that a fair bit, people coming up to him and, and you know, wanting to share it with him and and when I started singing he was like whoa yeah this that's actually, that's actually quite good man it's like you should come and meet the the manager of this band so I I went and met the rest of the guys and they they toured in this really funny sort of half-sized bus that had beds in it and stuff and um you know, at that point in my life, I, I was like, these guys are doing something so cool. Like they're touring around and they're getting to play music every day. And like the music was really fun. And like it was still kind of church music, but it was very R&B. And it was like crazy kind of like four part harmonies and things. And um, I sang for the for the band manager, his name was Claude. And the rest of the band was kind of standing around and they're all just like, man, like you, you can, you can you got some chops. And I was like, oh, thanks, you know. And they're like, you know, band members change over all the time. This band's been running for like 17, 18 years. And it's actually, you know, a, a member's going to leave quite soon. And would you ever be interested in, in in joining us on the road? Like just straight out, ask me. And and I was and like, 13 years uh, old. They didn't know that at the time. Uh, and I was just like, absolutely, let's do it. Yeah, like 100%. And then we sort of spoke about it a little bit more. And then they asked how old I was. And I was like, yeah, I'm 13. <laughs> and, and they were just like, oh, no, obviously we can't do that. And, um, you know, drove away. My dreams were crushed. And um, about six months to eight months later, um, we. Uh, we uh, we got this call from a, a member of the of the youth group at the church, and, and they'd got in contact with the church to get in contact with me and my family to to ask, or quite genuinely, if I wanted to join. I think they'd auditioned a bunch of other people, and the the crew that was that was still in the band at the time were just like, "Nah, that kid was probably the best choice," and mm. you know, let's have a chat with with the with my you know parents and my my mum and dad were pretty against it at the time I mean I was in year nine at, um, mm. and I was not having a great time at school as you can imagine like a you know a singing kid at school at a, at a pretty like sporty you know everyone was everyone was super cool and super macho that my parents kind of knew that I wasn't having a great time um, at school and they knew that I had this ability as a musician and I definitely sung so much through my life leading up to this point and, and, and done a lot of performing and, you know, they were, they eventually came around and like, look, you're probably going to do this as a job anyway. So why don't we just give him a head start? And, you know, why don't we just say, yes, you can, you have to do school on the road, but you know, you can join this band. And 
That's such an incredible amount of trust for them to put in that band as yeah. well to look after you. I know. <laughs> like, as a parent now, I, like, I reflect on that. I'm like, you guys were insane, <laughs> like, letting yeah. me do that. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was great experience. I, I, really, I really loved it. I think um, I wouldn't change that for the world. And I, I think what I learned in that time was so invaluable and I feel like it gave me a great, great leg up on, on, you know, anyone else my age attempting to, to get into music and, and to get into performing and, and songwriting and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that and everything else going on in your life, it sounds like such an incredible melting pot to make a musician, you know, with the music coming from your parents and your sister and your school and touring and Jared James and the church and gospel music. Mm. And all the way up until one o'clock today, we'll talk about, you know, the artists that you've become and your journey to this new album. But first, we'll add one more piece to that melting pot of music. It comes from the Edgar Winter group, Matt. Tell me why you chose this song. (laughs) Well, this was one of the tracks that I really clearly remember my dad showing me when we would go, like, driving somewhere. I mean, he would always be showing me something new and be like, oh, check out this song, Matty, you know, what do you think of that? And I remember when he played Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group and I was just like, this is sick. Like, this is (laughs) such a good song. And, like, it goes for, I don't even know how long the track goes for. I think it's like a six-minute song and, like, you know, I think appreciating now what was happening in like knowing what was happening in music back then and their use of even synths and like kind of how how kind of funny and rock and roll it was and like there's like this funny comedy element to it as well that I (laughs) didn't understand back then but you know I just um I just think it's like it just it just slaps <laughs> still, still to this day. Like even the drum solo is just hilarious. And like, you know, they've obviously just bought this super expensive synth that like makes a crazy LFO noise. And it's just like, they just put that on for like 30 seconds. Like I just, and then the drummer plays of it. I don't know. I just think it's really brilliant and musical. <laughs> so I just, I have such fond memories of like my dad showing me this song and me just kind of like, my musical horizons just broadening it's like that meme of like someone doing math in their brain (laughs) yeah yeah. yeah. (laughs) it was really good I'd like to put on the record too because this is radio and um we can't see you but the way that Matt's head is spinning around while he talks about this song is (laughs) something to behold you are listening to out of the box on FBI radio 94.5 this is the Edgar Winter group chosen by Matt Corby the song is called Frankenstein You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5, streaming via digital radio or on our website, fbiradio.com. That song was called Frankenstein. It was by the Edgar Winter Group and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Matt Corby. Matt has just released his new album, Everything's Fine. And today on the show, we're talking about the record and about all the moments in his life that brought him here. 
So let's jump to 2007. It's the morning of the Australian Idol Season 5 semi-final. You're 16 years old. You've gone through this whole process of auditioning and performing on TV and building this public profile and you've made it to the finals. You're right on the precipice of what most people would think is an illustrious music career. I I mean, walk me through how you were feeling that morning. What was that like for you? I remember... You know, my dad being being the very encouraging father that he is, um, waking me up multiple times in the morning because the auditions were on. And um, I never really thought it was very cool. I would always kind of laugh at it a little bit. My, my parents loved watching it. And I think they loved watching it because they probably thought I would go on it one day. And you had to be 16, I think, even to to be eligible. But, um, that was why dad woke me up that morning. Cause he was like, you know, you're, you're finally a man. You can go on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I begrudgingly eventually accepted his invitation to drive me into the city and, uh, and do the audition. And I think I, I got it pretty quick that they were pretty, pretty keen on using me as a character. And I think I'd seen enough of it to understand how they kind of, you know, manipulate the the real person's life into this reality TV character. And I think that was the reason why I was like, I, I really don't want to do this. And I think I'm going to ruin already all this stuff that I've been working towards, you know, even though I'm only 16 at this point, like I had spent so much time learning how to be a good performer and, and be a musician and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, this, I, I, I don't want to be lame. You know, I don't want to be in this lame show and everyone think I'm lame, you know, that, that would kill me, you know, that would be so soul destroying. And, um, I guess I was probably even, yeah, at 16, super cynical and, um, it's pretty full on. I mean, there were very few conversations around mental health at that point, might I add. There was very few conversations around what the internet and, and that kind of bullying mentality on the internet was even doing. I was copying it from so many people, uh, really negative, horrible stuff. And, and I was kind of like, yeah, I agree with you, Bear. <laughs> like, <laughs> I should go and kill myself, you know, thanks, man. Like, you know, like, you know it's pretty, pretty bad, pretty dark. Like, and, and it was just reaffirming everything that I thought, I'd, all the mistakes that I'd made, even just going on the show. Mm. Um, sorry to make light of that very serious subject but yeah well I mean it's I didn't realize that you kind of had these feelings towards Idol from the outset and I mean to start off in that place and then you know be continuously bullied in the process all the way up to the finals it must be pretty grueling how are you feeling by the time you get to the finals oh really bad like yeah yeah I was not coping at all and was was really crying out for help to the producers and very little response from them, you know, came back, very little sympathy came back. Basically them saying, well, you signed up for it. You've signed these contracts. You're locked in unless you have a vocal problem. And there was literally like, it, it, at the time, you know, and I, again, I'm 16, I'm a kid. I've got, I've got not a lot of emotional intelligence and mm. I don't think they would really let it continue 
like what, what was sort of actually going on with my mental health and all that stuff behind the scenes, I don't think they would even allow that these days because there's, there's such awareness around it. But at the time they were just like, you know, harden up you little dickhead. Like, you know, this is, this is a great opportunity for you. This is this, this is that. And, and I just didn't, I just didn't understand. I didn't see it that way. You know, I was like, I'm ruining my career before I've even, I've even gotten a chance to create one, you know, and this is not the kind of career that I want. Like I remember even getting to the final, I'd had some quite strong words with the, the, the main producer of the show, basically saying really that like, well, this is going to sound really bad, but the blood's going to be on your hands, mate, if I win this. And like, uh, you know, I, I cannot, I cannot win this. I cannot win this show. I'm not capable of fulfilling what is required of me. And yeah, I think, you know, whatever happened on that night, who knows, like maybe he was looking out for me because I came second. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, maybe it was just like, it was just the way it, it, it happened. But I think if I, if I won that show, it, my life would have been very, very different. And I would have got locked into a pretty crazy contract um, with no creative control and no ability to explore my creativity and, and become, you know, whatever I've become today, you know, if that's good or not, I have no idea. It's, it's everyone up to everyone else, I guess. But yeah, it um, is a real sliding doors moment. But yeah, crazy experience, you know, and being exposed to, to the Australian public and you know, and then, and then for the years to come, having that, you know, this, this thing sit over me, like, you know, we're never going to take you seriously because you're just that guy from that show. Um, it hurt, you know, and, and it, it, uh, it made me angry for sure. And it put this big, big chip on my shoulder, you know, which I definitely, I, it took a long time to shake really, really long time. And now I think I can talk about it freely. It's fine. You know, I'm, I'm over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting arc because I feel like from the outside looking in, a lot of your early career is, yeah, getting away from that and now we're at a time where we can kind of stand there and, like, look back at, you know, the impact that it had. Yeah. So let's talk about breaking away from that because being a young artist, you know, 16 and, like, trying to build a brand after having such a public profile on this show would be a challenge. I wouldn't know how to do that. And I guess I'm wondering if there was a particular moment perhaps that you felt like you had broken away or established yourself as an artist and a creative and someone separate from a karaoke show. Definitely wasn't like a, there wasn't like a one moment. I think it was lots of little wins, you know. Um, I definitely went quiet for a, for a good year there. And FBI were, was the first station to even play my music, my, my actual really? music. Yeah. Big time. And, um, Whoa. I, I really, I remember when, you know, you guys might've even played a song from my very first EP that I made when I was 18 or 17. It would have been just a year after Idol. And I was just like, no way. Like, I can't believe they like looked past the idol thing and and just took the song on face value i was really kind of amazed and um 
Yeah, there there wasn't a specific moment, you know. There mm. was I think the chip the chip on the shoulder stayed there for a very very long time. Mm. And even, you know, even in those little wins when you, you know, when you'd you'd hear that FBI was playing a song of yours, I would almost be embarrassed, you know, and I'd almost feel bad for like the people at FBI. I'm like, "Oh no, don't debase yourself." <laughs> like play an ex-idol, <laughs> you know, like you're making yourselves less cool. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. it's this like, I, you know, I, I couldn't accept that someone was actually like, no, on, on its merit, I actually just think the song's okay, you know. So that, yeah, it, it took a while. In a few minutes, I want to talk about the music that you've made since then and your journey out of that space. But right now we are talking about a teenage Matt Corby. So we're going to play a song chosen by a teenage Matt Corby. It comes from Outcast. I'm so surprised to see this on your track list. Can you tell me why you picked it? Oh, well, I mean, Miss Jackson, that was one of the, I think it was one of the first like CDs I ever bought. Um, and it was just a single because it was like I, d- I didn't have much money. And, you know, back in the day when you could go to Sanity and you could like put the put the headphones on and there'd be like a choice of like five or so CDs, you'd be like, oh, I just want to hear this song. And I remember putting it on and just being like, this is possibly the sickest song ever made by anybody. And there was a friend of mine in, in school that also just really, really loved hip hop music and um and we I bought the CD and we went back to my parents' house and just played it on repeat for maybe four hours. And I, I just made it my goal. I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn every phrase of this song. And like it's quite hard because like even the style of rapping is like is so tricky and the timing is so tricky and and the wording and phrasing is 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 insane. So I was just like, this is sick, like so musical and I mean Andre three thousand is thousand is just total genius, like musical vibes master. Um and I've just loved everything he's done since. Um you know, yeah, so yeah, big part of my childhood, I think, Outcast was, um, and it really introduced me into the world of hip hop, and um, never stopped loving it after that. It's Miss Jackson by Outcast on Out of the Box on FBI Radio ninety four point five, and it comes with a language warning. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Like having the boys come from her neighborhood to the studio trying to fight me. She need to get a piece of American pie and take her bite out. That's my house. I disconnect the cable and turn the lights out. And let her know her grandchild is a baby and not a paycheck. Private school, daycare, shit, medical bills, I pay that. Chosen by Matt Corby on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. It was Outcast. The song was called Miss Jackson. And we played it when, you know, talking about you as a teenager who, teenage you loved that song. So let's jump to adult Matt Corby, who's maybe sinking his teeth a little bit more into the music world. Let's talk post-brother coming out um, and, you know, maybe the attention you're getting from labels at that time. What did your life look like? Can you put me there? Yeah, I mean, I was um, super broke 
I'd gotten a job uh, in a coffee shop and it was just working off this massive debt that I had um, acquired. And I loved that job. It was super fun. I, I loved making coffee for people. It was, yeah, it was, it was a really great time. It's probably the time I did sort of most of my actual living as like a person, you know, outside of like just performing all the time and, and focused on music. Um, and in that period wrote brother and recorded it and, um, and then started playing these, these shows in people's backyards. And we traveled around Australia, me and, and three friends, my buddy Joey and, and my buddy Tommy and, um, and his friend danger, who quickly became my friend. We called him danger. He was like the least dangerous person in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, we were, we were just sort of, uh, we would go around to these people's houses that would basically put their hand up to be like, yeah, we'll host a little acoustic show. And um, ended up doing this run of like, it might have been like 40 of them. It was grueling. Mm. And, you know, there, at maximum there would only be like 80 people to 100, depending on the, the person's house and how, how many people they were comfortable with having there. Mm. And um, Brother was was, out, was was coming out at that time and, and I, th I think it might have helped the, the momentum of the song potentially. And then the song did what it did and kind of got played a lot and, you know, I'll be forever haunted by that ooey sound um, <laughs> that, that I made out of my mouth. And then, yeah, I uh, started getting all this interest from labels overseas uh, in a way more legitimate manner than, than previously. Ended up signing with, with Atlantic. Also met this, this other guy who came to a show of mine in LA. Uh, his name was Dominic Salol, who his, his, he's a producer, incredible producer, incredible musician. And I just, I just loved him to death. I just, I loved everything that came out of his mouth. I, I loved the way he played music. I loved the way he wanted to make music. And we just got along like a house on fire. We had a couple of jams in this studio and he was like, we should make a record. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. That sounds so fun. And, um, you know, I just signed this deal. So I was like, oh, cool. You know, Atlantic's going to fund this and we can make this record here in LA and it's, and it's going to be great. And, you know, I was probably being sheltered from a, a lot of the, you know, more difficult conversations going on behind the scenes with the label who they were like, no, we don't want Matt to make this record with Mocky. Mocky's too weird. We want this big commercial album. And they ended up wanting me to work with this guy, Charlie Andrews, who was actually, he's a brilliant producer as well, but I, I just wasn't ready to work in that kind of capacity. He, you know, he'd made the first Alt-J record maybe the second one as well. Like he's, he's very, very good. And I kind of dug my heels in with the label and said, look, you know, I really want to use Mocky. And they're like, well, look, we really want to use Charlie. And then we somehow came to this stupid agreement where we put them both in the room together trying to make the same record or, well, trying to make different records but with the same person kind of thing. And um, it was a really challenging time for everyone. I think, you know, Charlie probably didn't have a great time. Mocky <laughs> probably didn't have a great time and like I definitely didn't have a great time either just you know I think my songwriting wasn't great and we probably spent a lot of the label's money trying to make this record uh, and I, I think all along the way they weren't super happy with it I wasn't happy with it and um, it, it it turned into a 
a hot mess and basically we didn't get much from it other than other than one song really i mean we recorded a whole album but but really only one song was was passable which was um resolution yeah and you know we put that out and that was it was fine it did its thing and and people seemed to like it or some people did and that that was that was great or whatever but you know it was a big failure for me and you know i was in this pretty bad spot with the label where i was in a lot of debt i was kind of annoyed at them they were annoyed at me but it it gave birth to um sort of the beginning of me learning how to produce because i you know i I'd, I'd had a big sit down with moki after basically we'd been to the the whole album and you know we knew it wasn't going to come out and and that the label weren't into it and uh, I wasn't into it. And um, Mocky just said to me, he's like, man, just go and just go and do it yourself. Like, you know, you can, you know, I've heard you play the drums. I've heard you play the bass and you can play the piano fine and you can, you can play guitar. You could, I mean, you can make a record. You could, you just got to learn how to record it all, you know, just go and spend time doing it, learning. It's so funny when you tell your story this way because it almost seems like it happens in reverse. Like you start off with these huge TV experiences and <laughs> then, you know, you make an album and then you sit down and like hone the craft and like work away at the craft, which is yeah, just such an interesting yeah. um, journey to music. It's been a very public journey. You know? Yeah. And I think I found that hard too. It's been like quite high pressure the whole time. It was felt public, you know, no one cares. No one even notices. Yeah. But like, I, I know that, but it's, 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 it's felt that way to me just because of that, you know, I did start on television and then it's been this funny me working really hard to, to actually have a job behind yeah. the scenes. <laughs> yeah, just like, like pairing it back your whole career. <laughs> like. Um well, let's talk about pairing it back and honing the craft. Where do you start that? Where do you start to kind of sit down and practice music? I came back from the States and, and that sort of failed trip and a very good friend of mine, Sammy Smith, um, who ran a really great sort of cafe restaurant in, in Bondi. They had this spare apartment building that they kept all their freezers in and it was like three or four, maybe five, for like deep freeze freezers in this tiny Bondi apartment that he just let me set up all my stuff in and live in. And I bought, um, I bought like a drum kit and a, and a bass and like borrowed some gear off my friend George Georgiatis, who is like, he's an epic producer, mixer, master. Um, he lent me like a, you know, a, a preamp and a compressor and, um, a couple of mics and sort of pointed me in the right direction. And I, um, I just started recording myself every day and trying to make songs every day. All the recordings had these horrible buzzing noises in them because there's five fridges going off. <laughs> and then every now and then I get this call being like, hey, man, we need to get like some more berries, <laughs> you know, or some more frozen mango or something <laughs> like from guys from the cafe. Yeah, it was a really good time. Like I just, I just had fun just experimenting, making just terrible, terrible songs, you know, and, and terrible sounding things that got better and better and, um, really started to 
understand the process and and how grueling and annoying and and you know how much attention to detail is required and and um, totally just fell in love with it and and you know my interest in it just grew and it wasn't it wasn't hard for me to be interested in it I was I was so like you know I just I wanted to know what things meant I wanted to know how how compression and gain staging and all that stuff worked and how like synths worked and what like you know what everything meant on on a synth you know like because some of them can it at first it seemed like you needed to have a bloody phd in rocket science to understand how to get a cool noise out of it and like i you know <laughs> i um i yeah just kept kept going and and uh, really loved that experimenting phase and after after making Telluric that's when I really felt like I was I was getting really competent as as a player and as someone that can make make recordings you know and make them not sound like dog shit um well let, let's stop yeah. there because in a few yeah. minutes time i want to yeah go into that recording side of your practice more but first you've chosen a song by young bride to play on out of the box matt or oh, by mid by midlake oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> the song the song is called young bride T- tell me about this track why did you pick it um i mean this one this one kind of almost goes back to my teenage years but like i think you know this record stuck with me and it's, it's been one of my favorite, like the album that, that this song is from is one of, still one of my favorite albums. It's, it's incredible. The melodies are incredible. The songwriting is incredible. Um, the instrumentation is just like really fun. And especially at the time, you know, like, uh, you know, a lot of folky music was, was you know, um, very popular. And these guys put such a artistic, wonderful spin on that genre. Um, and I, I encourage everyone to, if they haven't heard the trials of Van Occupantha by Midlake, it's a really, really cool album. And, um, you know, definitely just stands alone as just this kind of masterpiece. Um, and there's some really great songs on it. And Young Bride is, is one of them. Young Bride on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I'm joined by Matt Corby, who joins me just after releasing his album, Everything's Fine. And in a couple of minutes, I want to talk about that album, Matt. But first, I want to talk about the fact that it's been five years between this record and the one before it. It's a big chunk of time. It starts off in a place you call Rainbow Valley. Can you can you tell me about that? After, yeah, after making the first record, I definitely, we toured a lot and I'd saved every bit of money that I could to put a down payment on a house. And, um, my partner is from this area in the Northern rivers. So we, we found this, this plot of land that had kind of two dwellings on it. And 
the the house itself was kind of unfinished, um, which which didn't really bother me. But it, it was I was more just stoked on this other little dwelling that was that was like a stone's throw away from from the big house that had power and a and a bathroom. And I was just like, yeah, this is the studio. This is this is the spot. Like I am so stoked. Like let's go. You know. And I immediately moved all my gear in there and I, you know, I felt like I could really put my roots down and I, I started expanding sort of a lot of my studio gear and sort of started reaching out to people to be like, do you want to write some music with me? <laughs> and basically one of the, one of the first people that, that actually came to the studio <laughs> And it was one of the first sessions I had run completely on my own was it was Genesis Owusu, Kofi, who is just the best, such a ledge. And I remember, you know, we, we kind of messed around with a couple of little things and then I kind of stopped and I remember saying to him, I'm like, hey, man, like, why don't you just show me three or so tracks of of things that you just think are sick, just that you absolutely love. Like if you were going to show someone a cool song, like what song would you show them, you know, or just something that you like. And he showed me like this weird Prince song that I'd never heard before. And then he showed me this, this really hard kind of grime song that was super cool. And I can't remember the third one, but I, I then was kind of like, why don't we, attempt to create or emulate the feelings that, that, that these pieces of music create for you. And, you know, I, I kind of listened to those songs that he played like a, a few times and I try, you know, not, not by copying anything, but more just be like, what is it that is creating these feelings? It like, you know, there's, there's, you know, something about the tempo, there's something about the style of chord changes, there's something about like the instrumentation in it and the combination of instruments. I was like, cool, there's some cool parameters, let's go. Let's let's start, let's just make whatever. Let's just go with, with kind of these rough, loose, loose feeling tones, guidelines. And um, we made a song called uh, Black Dogs, which wound up on his on his album and I, you know, it's, it's all my fault. It didn't sound very good. I mean, I, I wasn't engineering it very well and it got mixed by someone completely different who I don't think normally mixes. He's like a hip hop mixer, but I don't think he like mixes live instruments and all the things were kind of like live <laughs> instruments that, you know, I, I mean, I was still really proud that he, he liked it enough to put it on his record. And, and I remember him saying to me, I picked him up from the airport for him to come back and just finish the vocals on it. And um, well, he kind of said that, that our time uh, broadened his perspective on how he could create a record. And I, was, I felt so honoured that he said that to me. And I don't want that to sound like I'm bragging or anything, but I, I definitely hold that really dear in my heart. And from that point on, I... I thought, you know, that's a really good way to approach this production thing. It's like, you know, I don't want to superimpose anything that I think I do well onto anyone else. I, I, I want to find what they think is super cool and see if I can make that come into some musical 
reality. You, you talk about capturing that feeling, which I think is so important. And, you know, we had an artist on a few weeks ago who said that exact same thing, that the first record she made was just about, you know, getting the sounds right. And then she realised on the second one that it's actually about getting the feeling right. Mm. Um, and it sounds so different to on Genesis Uwusu, but it kind of sounds like Genesis Uwusu had an impact on you as well. Yeah. And, you know, as a producer, do you feel like working with people they're having impacts on you and, you know, you're taking bits of music from them or learning from them in any way? Absolutely. I think it's been the best part, the most selfish part for me of of the (laughs) job where I learn so much from, you know, these super cool people that have these totally different perspectives to me although we're both trying to accomplish a similar goal you know I I learn so much from the way that they approach the feeling of what they're you know of what they're doing and and the attitude in which they use to create it and and what they place value on musically and and uh, it's it's been such a massive learning curve and it's really broadened my taste and my horizons with with what is acceptable to create um i've i honestly would way prefer to be doing that more than i would like to be doing my own music most of the time i think it's um, a shame you've got that voice then i guess i know jeez (laughs) (laughs) stop it um yeah but no it's it's true it's i and i think i think all these people that have that have come through the studio and that i've been working with have have really helped me make this record, you know, and, and they've, they've rubbed off on me in, in this, in all these different ways and taught me all these really interesting little and sometimes quite large lessons, um, about how you can approach this weird job of, you know, making a, making a song, you know, Mm. and yeah, just being able to collaborate with people is, is, is so opening. Oh yeah. I love it. Love it to death. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like a meaningful way to have spent the past five years and a meaningful building block or many building blocks for your new album, Everything's Fine. So before we talk about the album, we're yep. going to get into one more song, Matt. It's by D'Angelo. Yeah. Why'd you bring this to the show? Well, I think when I heard D'Angelo, a lot changed for me. Um, again, like, uh, you know, going back to when I was a bit younger, Jared James used to come pick me up in his car and and we'd sort of go out and have some food or something and, and talk about everything. And um, he'd always show me music and he put on this song, Untitled by D'Angelo once. And he was like, just listen to like the space in this and how space is an instrument. And I'll never forget that conversation. And I'll never forget the first time I heard this song. I was just like, I was just like, holy balls. Like what a singer and like what incredible musicianship. And it's so tight and it's so, it has so much, almost too much feeling. Like it's, you know, Voodoo is probably arguably maybe one of the greatest modern masterpieces of of music in the last, in the last 30 years. I don't know. People are probably going to hate that. I say that some people probably love that. I say that I it's, 
it's one of my favorite records of all time. And, and this song was the thing that introduced me to the rest of the record. It, it, this song is actually not even my favorite song on the record, but, but it, it means the most because of that moment where, where Jared was like, just, just try and understand this man, just for a second. And, and when I wrapped my head around it, I was just like, whoa, this is, this is some next level stuff. It's Untitled by D'Angelo on FBI Radio Untitled, it was D'Angelo on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hall. I'm joined by Matt Corby, the chooser of that song. And before we played it, Matt, we were talking about Rainbow Valley and the recording space you've set up there. You actually have another home closer to the river in the Northern Rivers. So let's go to that home and let's go to the day that you were set to record your new album, Everything's Fine. What happened? Well, yeah, the um, on the day, the that huge, terrible flood came and hit very hard, and um, it destroyed our house, which was which we're still in the process of fixing, and and um, it's been fourteen months where we're not we're not back in it yet, and. Also, a flood happens quite slowly. You know, you're sort of watching it over a, a day and a half get to this point and you're kind of st- the whole time just like not believing it's going to get into your house. It's not going to ruin anything. And I was watching this weather system on on my app sort of come past us, do a full U-turn at Lismore, absolutely smash Lismore and then come back and smash us again. And... You know, there was no SES where we were because they were all in Lismore because they needed it way more and they're a way bigger community. And there was just locals, um, like a few of our neighbours and stuff that have boats that, you know, we were speaking to through the day and they're like, we'll come back and get you soon. We've got to go up to, you know, more Wollombar and, and there's another place called um, Kondong and people are up, are up there were already on their roofs. You know, they're a bit further upriver. And there's a huge catchment area that even after it stops raining, the water just keeps rising and it comes from the cane fields as well as the river. And it's, it, it, it can be really dangerous. The water's really toxic. We woke up that morning, there were cows swimming past, you know, our balcony. We were trying to like grab a couple of them to save them. You know, a lot of them died, which was a little bit heavy to watch and, um, and, you know, the whole time you're just kind of like, you're just kind of blank. You, you, we, you know, my partner was six months pregnant. Um, my my four-year-old, we, we made sure there was just like enough charge on like our iPad. We're like, have the iPad. We don't care. <laughs> just just watch it. It's like, we're going to, we're going to sort the house out. We're lifting everything up as high as we can. And, you know, I grabbed you know, my computer and my hard drives and like all the projects that I was working on at the time, I was really worried that, you know, I was going to lose all my work. And 
I, I was kind of like, of course, the day I'm going to start the record, mm. you know, this happens. This is this is just great. But so the record didn't happen that day. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it was a good solid week of um, of cleanup. I mean, it took a day and a half for the water to go down. I remember boating in there. Family friends of ours they they put us up in their place. That was about 15 minutes from where our house was, is, still is. Um, and, you know, we had, we were sort of rolling around actually helping people that were stuck. And um, we got all the cleanup out of the way. It, it took a good five days of basically shoveling toxic, disgusting smelling mud out of the house and from underneath the house and... Um, you know, we, we're, yeah, again, still in the process of fixing it. We're, we're so lucky, luckier than, than almost, than most, because we, we could come back and, and, and stay at the studio. You know, we weren't homeless, mm. which so many people were. Um, and then when we did move back into the studio, it was, I was just in, I had game face on. I was like, let's go. Let's, we, I gotta, I gotta make some, I gotta make this record now, you know, <laughs> or else, or else, you know, we, you know, we, who knows, we probably will be homeless soon. Like, you know, so yeah, it was, it was a hard time. It was a really hard time for everyone, you know, the whole community, everyone in Lismore, everyone in Mwollomba and Tobolgum, you know, in the surrounding areas, um, people are still suffering from it. And you know what, those, it's been flooding in so many other places in Australia too, in the, in the last, mm. um, last year, it's been insane. So many random communities that wouldn't expect it have been smashed. So, um, yeah, I, you know, tough times. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what that would have been like, especially with, you know, a, a kid. <laughs> um, yeah. Scary. So yeah, <laughs> let's talk about the album instead, almost ironically called everything's fine. Mm. I mean, we talk about the last five years you spent as a producer and the bits and pieces you took from different artists to build that album. Do you think that, you know, going through this event kind of plays into the way you created the album as well? Definitely. It, it, I was exhausted and, and it was, that was playing, that was taking a toll on me um, through the, the creative process. I mean, I was so happy to have Nat Dunn and, and, and and Chris Collins and, and Alex to, to hold me up in those times. And, and, um, you know, I had, a, I had my four year old banging down the door, um, every gun half an hour, I'd be like, daddy, what are you doing in there? You know, um, which I think was all a part of it. And it kind of helped me make decisions, as we were saying before, kind of based on feel more than anything else and, and not getting stuck in, in the, the minutiae and the neuroses of, of making a record. Um, you know, I, it was like a full family affair and like I was, I felt like I was kind of full-time parenting as at the same time as I was, you know, trying to make my, you know, trying to back up the last album and, and, Probably, again, you yeah, picked uh, the weirdest time. The way you talk about capturing feelings on this album is so interesting to me because, you know, obviously you were exhausted at the time and going through a lot, but when I hear it, I feel this sense of renewal or renewed energy and perhaps that's just because it's the first album you've made in a long time. But why do you think you made this album? I felt due. I, th I think I felt 
like, you know, the last five years working as a, as a writer and a producer, I felt like I treated it like an apprenticeship. I treated it like it was my time to learn from others. And I knew I had, you know, and still do have, have so much I want to know and learn and, and skills I want to develop and things that I want to get better at. But I felt at any point before when I'd set the, the day to start making that record, I hadn't felt ready to, to make another record. I was just like, there's no point, you know, it's just going to probably be some mindless dribble, you know, and, and undercooked. And, you know, I, I was, I was way more interested in, in just learning and, um, and I, f I felt comfortable with how much I had learned. And, and that was why I was kind of like, okay, let's, let's now approach the songwriting thing, but I, I'm, I'm the focus now, you know, and I'll try and do that. And it's really hard. I, I really do struggle with, with, with that concept of like, what am I going to say? Like when it's someone else, I'm just like, Oh, you know, let's write about this and this and this one. Let's make this kind of song. Mm. And when it's, when it's for me, I'm just like, I don't know. I don't, I got no idea. Like who, who wants to hear me talk about anything, you know, like, like some middle-aged like white boy like you know who cares like it's like the last person anyone wants to hear anything from maybe that self-awareness helps or i don't know like you know lol i just like made a record trying to make everyone listen to it <laughs> but um you know i yeah i i, f I felt like <laughs> in this really weird way it's like it's like my end of year um um project that or like assignment that I that I'm like giving to my superiors or my lecturer just being like this is everything that I've learned as a producer and a writer and it's almost like I set their standard in my own head to be like you need to continuously evolve and and my what I thought my next form of of evolving or, ev or evolution was was being across every detail of the record making process and and that includes the engineering and the production and and becoming a better songwriter and 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 becoming a better instrumentalist and all that stuff which i have been developing as i as i've had the opportunity to work with all these other you know really brilliant artists and and work you know with these young emerging artists and stuff and it's yeah. So, I mean, when I say it's, you know, I sort of made, it's like my own apprenticeship. Yeah. I just made up for myself that I felt like I was doing, <laughs> you know, to, to, I don't know, to fulfill some inner goal of, 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 you know, becoming better. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it, it showcases everything you've learned, but then it's this real sense of ownership over your practice. And I don't know, like being involved in it creatively at every step, I think, is really incredible and it's a really special album. It's called Everything's Fine. I'll put a link to it on the programs page on fbiradio.com. So um, after you've listened to Matt talking about the album, <laughs> you can go and listen to the album itself. You can also listen to it live. Matt is performing as part of the Everything's Fine tour at the Enmore Theatre. The Tuesday show, which is on the 30th of May, is sold out, but there are still tickets available on Wednesday, the 31st of May. They are 80 and I'll put a link to that on the programs page on fbiradio.com as well. How are you feeling about touring the album? 
really good actually i'm excited to get on the road and um and to play the songs and yeah i i'm pumped great yeah and show all of us everything you've learned as well in your end of year presentation exactly yes yeah i'll have i'll have <laughs> graphs statistics you know it's gonna be no i'm just joking yeah i'm really looking forward to it it's it's been a long time since i've had the opportunity to to play a proper show in oz so yeah Thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today. Like you talk about your evolution and it's such a long evolution that starts at this really high height and then kind of takes an interesting route back down. <laughs> I've learned so much about you. So thank you for giving me this time. No, no worries. No, thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun going through my <laughs> past. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the last song you've picked. So the last song... Um, is by this really clever producer um, that I just love. I love everything he does. And they're just really great. A lot of it's just sort of sampled sort of beat making. Um, this one's called What If? And his name is The Dirty Art Club. And uh, I strongly encourage you to go through his discography because it's just the best, especially the record Basement Seance. Unbelievable record. Very good driving record. I think most records that I like a good driving records, but <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah, it's it's What If by the Dirty Art Club on FBI Radio 94.5. This show is out of the box. I'm Mia Hull, and since 12 o'clock today, I've been joined by Matt Corby. If you did want to listen back to this interview, you can do that on the programs page on fbiradio.com, uh, where you can also find the full list of songs that Matt brought to the show and details to his album, Everything's Fine, which is out this past week, and his show coming up at the Enmore on Tuesday, May 31. Um, ticket links will be there too you can also listen back by the podcast wherever you get your podcasts i want to give a big shout out to mary ventura and tanya ali who researched and produced this episode and do stay tuned lunch is right around the corner fbi